0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the BizDev Podcast, the podcast about developing your business. I'm David Baxter. I am back. Yay. I know you all missed me. I'm joined by Gary, who stepped in last week to be the host. Um, I'm sure that went horribly. Yeah, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. Perfect. Okay, so I have. I want to start strong here. I'm going to read you a quote. It's a long quote, but I want to read the whole thing. And I will then put it in context. All right, here we go. Quote. Okay. Okay. First of all, social media isn't social. Full stop. It is not. And if you need proof of that, just go into a room of teenagers who are together, but not together because they're all on their individual devices. And let's not blame it on teenagers. Let's, Let's go into a room of adults or walk down a city block and see how many people are buried in their phones. Myself included. In nature... A web is a trap. You get stuck in it, and then you get killed. Throughout history, it is not uncommon to spread lies, but the pace it multiplies as it exponentially greater on the web. There is an old dictum that a lie goes around the world three times before the truth gets started. So on the face of it, what do you think? I
1: love that quote. Just because... It can mean anything to anybody who's reading it uh, about their own, you know, opinions or biases about social media and, you know, misinformation and lies online or whatever. But it sums it up extremely well, and especially the part about look at a room full of teenagers—they're all on their phones individually, but then it, same thing happens to adults. Yeah, I mean, I live with two teenage daughters, and it's it's been crazy to try to keep them off their phones every now and then just to do stuff. In fact. Just a couple of weeks ago, one of my daughters forgot to connect to the Wi-Fi in the house. And she was using so much data burning through videos and stuff on Mm -hmm. YouTube that she used 78% of our data like in the first two days. And we all share the same data. So then we all had to kind of cap our usage to only Wi-Fi when it was available and just not like be on our phones in random situations. And wow, that was a, a very stressful week for us or actually two weeks for us to try to (laughs) not go over the data limit. It was a, it was a weird experiment, but yeah, we made it through. But at the same time, this, this quote kind of brings it right back home to like, yeah, the, the idea of social media being social is a complete farce. It's a way for you to project whatever you're feeling in any way you want onto a world of people who are ready to feast on it or fight back. The whole idea of everybody says online what they would never say to someone's face is so true.
0: Yeah, I, th- I took this as a hot take. I love the idea of in nature, a web is a trap. Yeah, that's good. That's a great thing. So let me put this in context. So this is Ken Burns, who is a documentarian.
1: World famous um, documentarian and photographer.
0: He is. So he is a well-known person, at least in his world. Probably the average Joe doesn't know that name, but he has been around and he's very well done. He's currently marketing or uh, out publicizing his new uh, documentary about Benjamin Franklin, who I'm very intrigued with because I think he's a very interesting historian. There's I think a lot of our founding fathers are really interesting people. Yeah and it's, it's cool to listen to them but
1: it's cool to find out the difference between what you perceived of them based on what you were taught as a kid versus what they were in real life.
0: Well they still were amazing people even in real oh, life. Yeah. But yes, oh, they weren't sure. quite there's, as the the fun
1: little insight information that you find out later that kind of humanizes them a little bit more is like, "Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. They're just regular dudes <laughs> or women." There's another no, regular people. Here.
0: I'll do the, I I'm doing this on the fly because I just read it and I think it's amazing. Quote, the problem with cancel culture is that it leaves us feeling lonely. We feel bereft of ideals and heroes, but we have to remember that a hero was never perfect. The Greeks were telling us that there are imperfect, that here are these imperfect people. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to match great powers. It's so easy to dispense with someone when you discover, aha, you did this it is much more difficult to sit with those contradictions and not to accept them but to try as benjamin franklin would say to improve on them and this guy's just a walking quote machine i love that yeah he's good dude
1: that's good the stuff. um the cancel culture thing is weird cuz it's used as like a buzzword in the media for like people sure. jumping on to like immediately disagree with someone or tell you not to you know do business with that company because they did this, this one time. And and like a flame, it, it flickers and burns out pretty quick. And it goes back and forth to everybody. Anybody who says like cancel culture is a joke, still participate in the cancel culture in one way or another. So well, it's funny because
0: both sides do it right. I mean, typically right now it's considered a liberal tool, but well, in, it's being we kids,
1: framed as a liberal tool, but I mean, the conservatives do it just as much. I mean, here in Florida, the conservatives are, Quote
0: unquote, cancel culturing Disney. Well, that's, it. but you know what they called that when we were kids? Boycotts. Remember that? That was like the big thing. It's the same concept.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's just the social media buzzword. To go back to Ken Burns' first quote, like, this is just that web that people get stuck in that eventually can kill you.
0: <laughs> now, I'm going to bring this back to what our core function is on this podcast, and that is business owners. And I think. I will say as a, as my, me as a business owner, I, I have, as my family will well attest, I have no filter and it's, it, it serves me well in some ways and it gives me in a lot of trouble in others.
1: I was going to go in the direction of social media being a double-edged sword for small businesses starting up as well. It can well, be that's fair. an extremely useful marketing tool. And at the same time, if something
0: goes wrong, it could put
1: you on it the can other blow side of that cancel culture.
0: Yeah. It's so to me, though, as a business owner, I am nervous often putting almost anything on the web because I, and then when I do, I have to make sure it gets edited many times so that my filterless being does not get out too easily because I can say something on accident and be upsetting to people. I don't want my business to be hurt because I say something that was taken out of context or I didn't mean it that way, or I'll use an old idiom that I knew as a kid that now means something totally different. And I don't realize that, right? That happens to me a lot. Like I'll use an old idiom that my dad taught me, which when I think about it, no, objectively it's probably horrible, yeah. but I don't think anything of it. Cause to me it doesn't have that context, <laughs> but I'll say it. And then my daughter will say it to somebody and then she gets upset because someone gets on her right, this is the world we yeah, live it's, in. Yeah, this is
1: the generational thing that's been you know going on forever as well too. Oh, for sure, for sure. But now when it's on social media, just it's amplified and it multiplies as Kemper said exponentially. And it's yeah, it could it could be harming, which is it, why it be. you'll see a lot of uh, small businesses that probably have the same mindset as you too, like afraid to do something wrong on social media. But Mm -hmm. every single holiday, they'll put up
0: that same post that everybody else is putting up. For sure. Yeah. I mean, everyone, you'll see that now. It's like if you, because now you get in trouble. If you don't post something, it means you support the opposite is what it has become. Even though if I am not a political organization, that's not Big Pixel in particular, is not a political organization. We accept all types, all kinds of people. That's fine. It's just not a thing. Our workforce is extremely diverse. But if you, well, I mean, we're small, so extreme is, if <laughs> we don't have like tons but of people. But that's my point. We try.
1: We try. We're small and diverse at the same time.
0: Um, but we try to do that because I hire good people and they just happen to be all over the map. Exactly. But what is, is interesting is that if I don't post a pro-Ukrainian thing right now, just as an example, some people might assume I'm anti or I'm pro-Russia or anti-Ukraine. I'm like, no, I'm just not involved. I just It's just not a place for Big Pixel who builds websites and mobile apps to, to get involved. Yeah, so but- we just stay out of it. But if, then if you're big enough, that doesn't happen to us because we're so tiny. Yeah. But if you're Coca-Cola and you don't stop selling Coke to Russia, maybe that's a bad example. Because maybe that's, but you don't put a Ukrainian flag on your social media. Like, I, I get probably you shouldn't support the Russians by get, taking their money. Okay, fine, 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 fine.
1: But, Yeah, so now social trends on social yeah. media are being, like, if, if you're part of the marketing and PR firm of giant corporations or even larger companies, and you're not participating in the predominantly most current popular social trend, people wonder what's going on. So Yeah, they
0: assume things about you, which uh, it used to be that Coca-Cola sold sold drinks and now they sell culture, which is their choice. And to be fair, maybe that's a bad example because they are a cultural warrior. They want to be okay. Apple's the same way. Apple used to sell computers. Now they sell a lifestyle and that comes with a cultural bent. Okay. But if I sell uh, packaging, I sell plastic bottles, blank plastic bottles. I'm just doing this to make a product. I'm not involved in a culture war. Now you're expected to be, which is really interesting to me as a business owner. That is, it's scary because if you do it wrong or you're not paying attention, or you just don't even that, know what the trend is.
1: Yeah. The feeling of that expectation can be stressful too, because you might not, like people might not expect, but you feel like, uh-oh, what am I doing if I'm not participating? Is anybody even seeing, you know, what I am or am not saying? Yeah. So that's an
0: added part of that.
1: It's just interesting. Media stress.
0: It's, as the younger people get older. So my son is a, a Zoomer, which I love that name. Um that's Gen hilarious. Z. Um, uh, which I think is so, especially with COVID, is so perfect. But Zoomers yeah, and especially millennials. Like my daughter
1: two years of her school was basically over Zoom. So the mm-hmm. generation Zoom Zoomers. Zoomer. That's
0: I gotta hand it off to whoever branded that one. Yeah, whoever branded that's pretty, pretty brilliant. But um they are getting older, right? Like millennials now are up to 40 years old, 20 to 40. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. That's yeah something. They're old. Um, they're old. And then the Zoomers are now in college. And so they now have their own money and they're now doing things. And as a business owner, that matters because they bu- they buy things based on their beliefs and their culture, which is a first time. right? It used to be I bought meat or clothes or shoes because I liked your product. Now it's I, your product's fine; it's as good as everybody else's product. But or I believe what your, in what. Yeah. What does you your company stand, stand for? for? What do you exactly. stand for? Are you saving the planet with your shoes? No. Then I'm not buying those shoes. That is a whole new world yeah. that that is coming about, which people our age, Gen X, and and older have no idea what we're talking about. I mean, we're really. I'm Gen X. Don't try to
1: paint me. No, no, I'm not you.
0: saying you. I'm just saying <laughs> I'm if you're a Boomer right now. <laughs> You are completely confused because I was again, just going to say
1: if you're a boomer right now, and I'm referring to my
0: parents, you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, unless you're really actively trying to be, uh, but I mean, so Gen X officially goes all the way up to about sixty years old right now. So that if you're a boomer at this point, I mean, you're yeah, and I didn't mean that in a derogatory way. No, I just it's, meant it's the, true.
1: the way the business and tech trends now, based on uh, purchasing power and the consumer's mindset completely foreign to that generation. It would just be like what what do i need? what can i afford who's got the cheapest what's the value? that's what i'll get. i don't care about
0: anything else. And now it's i'm willing to pay $300 for these shoes because they're made of, you know, it, it, they're fair More trade sustainable, yeah. They're they're sustainable products, you know, they're made of bamboo and and cork or whatever and they're made in a i i know because i've got now uh i can trace where this came from and who sewed these stitches that they were earned a fair wage and all that. i mean these are all good things don't get me wrong because before business would just sell you whatever they were making and they were making as cheap as possible and sweatshops and etc i mean i'm not saying any of this is bad but it, boy from a business perspective it does change things it, it changes, changes a lot of things.
1: but then at the same time um Maybe the younger generation who are starting like their own little ventures and entrepreneurs starting their own little thing, they this is ingrained in them already from the start. Mm-hmm. So that kind of directs their their motion forward. So it doesn't seem as foreign. You know what I mean? It's just something that, like you said, maybe the older generations have to retrofit back into their consciousness when they're trying to, you know, market their product and, and sell their product
0: yeah yeah. some keep in mind. I know that uh, we kind of derailed from the uh, Ken Burns, but I thought that that's a pretty good tangent right there. It sparked an interesting conversation. So we're gonna continue our series, back to our series. So for those who have not paid attention to our other episodes, shame on you, you should go listen to all of them. What are you doing? How are you missing these? Yeah, how are you living your life? Anyway, direly important. So we are making a series of how to build a startup from scratch in the cheapest, most effective way. Is that the right? I wouldn't say.
1: I wouldn't say cheapest. I would say we're giving insights from the perspective of a company that's built startups multiple times on what might be the the safest. Value, effective way
0: to spend your money. Maybe that's the best way of saying it. We're we're making up our marketing spiel. We're not going for cheap. I I have I I can't stand all the articles and Reddit posts and stuff that talk about how to do your startup for no money. That
1: that's we're we're middle roading it like middle lane, but also the the one that has like the you know your GPS is warning you of all the traffic jams and everything ahead. So we're kind of guiding you in through the the middle lane that's going to get you there the most effective way without the extremes of either, you know. So
0: cheap our crappy series products are way overpriced. Our series moves forward If our first step was to validate your idea using traffic and SEO. That's two episodes that we talked about. Once you've got your idea validated, you know that there's a market out there, you know people are willing to pay for it or sign up or show interest, you can move on to the next stage, which is building a very good looking, but very non-functional website concept. So it's very manual. It looks really professional. So people sign up and stuff like that. But on the back end, it's very manual. So it takes a lot of time on your part as the business owner um, to to fulfill an order because it's not automated at all. That's the next step. And So now we're saying, okay, what's after that? How do you go from that really great website that's very manual intensive to investing in a real app, and that is obviously our bread and butter because this is where most people come to us, and so we ha- we can explain the, how what the next steps are. So first, I want to put in context when you should do this. Yeah, and it, the timing pretty, is this, essential. It's pretty common sense, really. We're not at this point when you're ready to build an app. You should be making some money, not a ton. It shouldn't be making millions of dollars that you're weighted. Well, you probably can't sustain that because you don't have enough time, but it should be. You should now know that your idea is legit. It's worth investing in, etc. cetera. And you're now the manual stuff. You're getting overloaded with orders, it, you know, doing all of this manually, checking the spreadsheets, moving things around, calling people, all the manual steps you're having to do to fulfill an order. Where it's it's you're now overloaded. You maybe you've hired some people because you're making some money, but it's a very manual thing, and you want to automate. That's really what an app and a good web portal, whatever you want to call it, can do for you. It automates things and makes your life easier for your customers as well as you on the back end. And so that is really where you start to look at a real app developer, whether it's Big Pixel or uh, any of the other shops that are good. But what I want to make sure of is how do you do that? How do you yeah. know you've got a good good team that you're working with. Well, first you should just hire us. No, I'm just kidding. Um, There's lots of great teams out there, but there's also a lot of bad teams. And that's really what I want to make sure that I arm you guys with the knowledge of how to find a good team.
1: One of the reasons that we wanted to do this series from the beginning was because we did see a lot of these quote unquote incubators that were basically just marketing tools for some of these not so great Dev companies.
0: Yeah, there was a lot of
1: promises being made. Without sustainable results shown.
0: Yeah, and they weren't... um, There was no way that they were doing what they were saying they were doing unless there was some shenanigans going on. And that's where it really bothered me, is I didn't want to... I, I just that just really bothered me. I, I feel transparency is so big and what we do is is so unknown by most people that it's so easy to trick people that just always comes in the back of my head. So that's where the series came from.
1: Yeah, so communicating the value in what we do, not only us as big pixel, but you know dev companies seeing the value between a good versus not so great dev company and what are the pitfalls this these are the things that you have to look out for.
0: So one of the things that comes into play is when I'm hiring a developer, especially if I'm young. And I I say that because young people know other young people and they're all fired up. And I love that, but you'll get the concept of sweat equity, right? That is something that comes up a lot when you're starting to find a dev team and you don't have a lot of money, but I want to just throw down that I have never seen that work ever. I've seen a lot of people try it just doesn't work, um, and so we can dive into that deeper if you want in the future. But that is, should be very be very careful of that. So, how do you find the right dev team? And I would say the key is because you're te- not technical. I'm, the the assumption here is you are not technical. You do not have a technical co founder. So now you are talking to dev companies that are doing black magic that you don't understand, and you're very nervous about hiring the wrong one. Right? That's that's the the assumptions that I'm putting forth right now. And that that's commonplace. Yeah. That's super common. That's most of our clients. The, the vast majority of our clients are exactly that boat. Um, and the, the number one thing I, I believe you should look for in a dev team is transparency and passion. Those are the two things. Those will get you pretty far because you can tell if someone, if you're talking to the right person on the team, like not just a sales guy who's there to sell you something, whether or not the dev team can do it or not. I'll tell you a story. When I was a consultant many years ago, I was on a big old team. We were lo- working on a government project. There were 17 of us on this one project and they used crystal reports uh, pretty heavily on, uh, on this project, which is a, a way of making, you know, PDFs and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask what that was. It's Um it, it, They've been around forever. Crystal reports. And so, the sales guy, you're like, oh, yeah, we've got tons of Crystal Report experts. We'll bring one in. We'll fly one in for you. You know, it's a big, big company. I'll fly one in for you. You'll be good to go. OK, the client's like, cool, that sounds great. So they bring in this guy who might have been 25. All right, fine. So I, I say that only to say he was early in his career. He comes in. He had never seen Crystal Reports in his life. But the sales guy was touting him as this major expert. So the first day this guy got here. He went in with the architect, and they both were learning Crystal Reports enough so that they could make it appear to the client that they knew what they were talking about. That is why I don't typically like working directly with salespeople because they they just want to close the deal.
1: From a now, design, maybe that's horribly biased, from a design but, perspective and a design background. Yeah, salespeople um, promising the world, promising things that are not even in the scope or range of the designers in house. On a timeline and deadline that's not even like feasible happened all the time. So, yeah, going past the sales guy and talking to someone on the team that actually knows what they're talking about is essential.
0: There should be if you're talking to a small enough dev firm, not a big boy. If you get a big boy, there's going to be a salesperson. But a big boy team, well, I'm talking a team with twenty plus developers, thirty plus developers. A larger company, dev company, will have what's called a sales engineer. That is often a developer who helps with sales. They are the guys who are going to make it happen behind the scenes. Um, If you can find one of those, that's wonderful. Um, You can, hey, I'd like to, you know, let's talk to the sales engineer. I'd like to move to the, to to get to the nuts and bolts of it faster. Um, That's one way you can get closer to the dev team. Smaller dev teams, you're probably talking to the founder um, and they most likely were a dev. Um, And so... With a small dev team, it comes across real fast because that founder is usually extremely passionate about what they're doing and they obviously are very knowledgeable. Um, and so, that, but that's step one is, is transparency, making sure that you are talking to the people who really know what they're talking about. Because if you're stuck with a sales guy, and I guess sales guys are great, don't get me wrong. I, I, we've had sales guys in the past. I don't have a problem with them, but in my world where, where we talk about transparency, their job is to get them to me as fast as possible not to try to close the whole deal. I won't let a sales guy close the deal because yeah, they they can they be can't. the one
1: step in between the transparency that we want to use so much with a little bit of a let's just say they might not defer to the transparency immediately if it means they can't close the sale.
0: Yeah. So so that's step one is to get to the people who have that passion. Um that really love what they're doing who you can you can feel but you get them talking about past projects. Like again, you don't have to be technical. You don't have to understand the mumbo jumbo coming out of their mouth. That is fine. You just need to be able to read whether or not they love what they're doing and that they've done it a lot, right? Get them talking about their prior projects, things that they've done. You should see them light up like a candle. um, If they're really into this Um, and you want that, you want that passion to come through. Um, you should ask for to be very clear on the, the proposals. Everything should be transparent. Everything should be very clear. This is what I'm going to do. This is what it's going to cost. Now, you're going to get... There's a podcast upon podcasts about this stuff. Fixed fee versus hourly, that kind of stuff. That's probably worth diving into uh, a little deeper when we're talking about hiring uh, yeah, the right Separately. Uh, but you should know what it's going to cost. You should know exactly what is being built. Now, man, you talk about one of the crux of of the reason projects are going to go sideways is because the spec is too vague. And there's not enough trust in the relationship that you're going to take care of one another. That's on both sides. And so you have this kind of a fork in the road. You could spend a lot of time and you're going to have to start paying them at some point to really dive deep and spec it out and build this really, really detailed spec. You probably don't want to do that as the, as the owner and the, the dev team probably doesn't want to either. So there has to be a level of trust because you can't get down. Well, this button's going to be here and it's going to be three pixels to the left. And when it clicks here, it's going to do this, this, and this. That's you really to, hard to do up front.
1: You have to go in with the understanding that these are problems being solved up front we have an idea but there's always going to be problems that come up during the development and creation that need to be solved as well and so like you said with that trust um a lot of times there might be some what's the word i'm looking for here readjustments of time frames based on new things that have to be built in order for like step a can't be completed unless step b is you know done along the same path so there might have to be some wiggle room in there that you didn't account for in the spec at the very beginning. So that's what we usually like to do.
0: If it's a larger project is we will ask them to hire us to build the design and we will ask them to build. And with that design, not only is it pr- the pretty stuff, but it's also the flow and you start to see your screens come to life in terms of just what they look like. And you'll see some high fidelity, some low fidelity, but it allows you to then say, this is exactly what this app does. That's very powerful. And it's worth its weight in gold, because then I know exactly what I'm building or pretty darn close. And then I can build you a real spec based off of that design. Some of our clients balk at that because they, they don't want, They want to hire you and hire you. They don't want to say, well, I hired you to do this design and then find out you're 10 times more expensive than I thought you would be, right? So that's always a a dance you have to do. But bottom line is your dev company should be able to – I'll use a Dave Ramsey phrase. They should have a heart of a teacher where they understand that you don't know what they know and that's not – they're not put off by that. You'll find a lot of devs who are kind of snooty about it. Though you should run from that guy because it's not your fault. You have not failed because you don't know dev stuff. I don't know doctor stuff. That doesn't mean I have failed, right? So, and
1: you probably shouldn't pretend that you do if you don't. It's not going to
0: happen. The consequences are much higher if I fake doctor stuff. Yeah, that reminds me of a story I read. There was this guy, one of the. Um, Actors on Grey's Anatomy. I can't remember which one. It doesn't matter. One of the hunky doctors. Um, He was on a plane and he's up in first class and he's just minding his own business. Someone in economy starts having chest pains. And he said, everyone, including the stewardess, has started looking at him. And he's like, what are you looking at me for? I have no idea. (laughs) what i'm doing i play a doctor i am not actually a doctor but it's you know perceptions reality i guess um the person was fine there was an actual doctor on the plane but yeah. i just thought that was funny uh, okay i don't want to beat the dead horse but i think that's 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 the but the heart of a teacher a design first strategy is really great but you will have to pay for that no one's doing a full design for free um so if you can afford that you know, several thousand dollars is what you should expect from a good design, d- good dev company doing a good design. Um, but it, that's usually s- it's worth its weight in gold. Cause if you don't do that, uh, not to belabor the point, but if you don't do that, what happens is we build a spec and we do our best guess as to what we're building. And there's assumptions made on both sides and somehow, you know, Inadvertently, something got missed. Either the client missed something, forgot to tell us about it, or the de- developer assumed something that was wrong, and now we're we're who pays for that? Right? That that time, out of, can time, be, out of money, really, and yeah, yeah it gets really expensive. So, the, invest in your design first, and that should be the same company. You shouldn't have to hire a design company because, gosh, that's a whole nother podcast. Sorry, you need to be careful with that because a designer can make things pretty, but they don't necessarily know tech stuff. And so they might design you something that's technically very hard to build and cost you a lot more money. That's where they the marriage of the two is important.
1: And when you're saying design, I want to expand on that a little bit. A design isn't always just the final end result. Look how pretty! Like I saw something on Dribble that looks amazing. I want my app to look like that. A lot of times in the real world, when you're building a product, that's might not you know achieve those Dribble fantasies. But the design process in itself, when you're bringing something like this to a dev company should always start with at least just like a wireframe or sketch or something to just start putting your ideas down into a concept that's actually creatable in just form and flow. Like you were saying, can you imagine getting halfway through an app? And then you're like, wait, now how, why doesn't this part connect with that part? Well, and then you're both stuck like, what do you mean? Of course it should. We just didn't think about that in the spec. So even just a low fidelity wireframe can get you, you know, those puzzle pieces put together before a mid or a high fidelity design even happens, which of course should happen because that is the blueprint for the developers to create the I wanted to ask and probe about this weird new obsession you have with dungeons and dragons oh. cuz you've hooked Juan into it and i'm seeing you guys talk on slack and it's just hey we have moved I'm not our i don't nerditude. exist in that world but man do i want to make fun of it
0: <laughs> we have see he is now just this is just a prop, I'm just so teasing. i just of i'm actually we moved it, our nerditude into our own channel so as to not bother the rest of you non nerds oh i'm lurking don't worry about it. <laughs> Um, No, I will be, I have been an old school role player for, in my heart, since I was in high school, but I was too quote unquote cool, right? I didn't want to portray non-coolness, that I'd never allowed myself to play. So you were a closet dungeon master. I was a closet dungeon master and magic nerd, right? I always watched and looked at those cards. Oh, but I never played because I was too, too proud. And in college, I dove really deep into that world. I actually wrote my own, self published it the whole bit. I mean, I have gone way. Were you a
1: competitive Rubik's cuber? No,
0: I'm not. That would have been the trifecta. That would have been the trifecta. I am not smart enough to be one of those. But um, so, but then I had kids and all of that, and never touched it for 20 years now.
1: Yeah, what I was bringing this up for is because Juan and I spoke about the nostalgia.
0: Uh, Oh, yeah. Back
1: and and getting back into like, you know, hobbies or passions you had, you know, as as a way of just kind of using it as a like a therapeutic way to make yourself happy. That's aside from anything else in your life. It's just one personal small thing that you're doing for exactly yourself that makes you happy and you don't care what anybody else thinks about it. And it's usually something that's nostalgic back
0: from your child. My family absolutely just rides me as being super nerd, which is totally fine. But I will say, I was telling Ron Juan uh, the other day that I had this, one of those moments, you know, when you're a kid and you say, I'm going to do this when I get older. Exactly. And so when I was a kid, you know, the books and stuff of D&D, and, they're expensive. They just are. They know they can, they know their niche and they get pricey. I was always
1: impressed with the amazing artwork in those books, man. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah, that's always Beautiful, one of the favorite
0: cool like just scenes that were just inspiring. The... So, so I, as a kid, though, you can't afford them. Like you had one guy who had a book and we all talked to him or you'd go to the comic book stores back then and you'd look through them because you couldn't afford them. And now as an adult, it's like I can nerd out and, and go a whole different way because now I have some discretionary income, which I didn't have as a kid. So buying the books isn't that big of a deal. And so I've got like now I've got metal dice That are, you know, things that as a kid I would have just loved, but could never have afforded. And I've got a dice tray now. I mean, all the things I wanted as a kid, I now can have. So it's almost like this. And I will say there's a whole other level. I'll stop after this. You can now buy dice, as for example, that are made of prisms. They're $80 for dice. And I'm like, man, that's on a whole other level. But they're really pretty. And I'm
1: curious. Does the 3D printing model come into D and D dice at all?
0: Like, are people making their own, like 3D printed custom weird dice? The reason why I think no, I don't think 3D printers can do them where they'll roll randomly enough. Does that make sense? They have yeah, to be perfectly weighted. Sense. Okay. Yeah. So, like, the 3D printers still have kind of have those rough edges and things. So they could they can make them as display pieces, but yeah, no, but not playable. real dice. Um, because it's it's funny though. There are some people who are really into that and they build up the, you know have you ever seen a casino dice and they're yes. super sharp edged yes that's because of accuracy they want them to bounce that's the whole reason why they're sharp edged and you can if you're really into accuracy there are whole lines of dice that are super sharp like they'll almost cut your hand because they're made to be like that and then there are the rounded corners which are more comfy but they're not as accurate but for DD, we're not wagering ten thousand dollars here right we're playing a the game amongst friends so it's not that big of a deal but uh but i don't think i've ever seen 3d printed dice i'm sure they're out there somewhere but i have seen some that are made of semi-precious st- stones i had a vision in my head now of uh you know some people
1: that gamble with dice or whatever practice non-stop and, and they know mm-hmm. all the possible scenarios so i imagine someone with a 20-sided dnd dice rolling it randomly for like days and counting all the results and then seeing oh, no, no mathematically this isn't balanced because the more randomization, like the obsession can go that deep. You I'm
0: can oh think. for sure. There are companies. There's a different
1: there's, movie playing in my head about Dungeons and Dragons right now.
0: The, it, there's lots of different levels of nerd, man. And there are some who's like, it's all about accuracy of the roles and they will spend 50 bucks on dice that were cut and weighted at a, you know, molecular level, practically. I'm not one of those
1: people. Like the poker scene from uh, Hangover with Zach Galifianakis, with all the equations floating around in his head when he's rolling his D and D dice.
0: <laughs> nice. All right. Have you made fun of me enough? Do you did you scratch the itch?
1: Oh, I'm sure. I'm just saving saving some for next
0: week. Fair, fair. No, it's good all to have right. you back, man. And I'm glad Thank you guys had a great time to be on your vacation. Uh, we will be. Speaking of being back, we will come back next week. Alrighty righty, everybody. Thank you for listening to us. Spread the word. Get some subscriptions going on. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. See you guys.